where we've been. As I said, we've been learning, we're going to learn four new songs. We've already learned two songs. And the first song we learned a couple of weeks ago was the song of justice. And we define justice not so much in the writing of wrong, but rather that this servant, this servant would bring about justice in the earth. And so we were introduced to God's ideal servant. Because there, have been a, there are a lot of people who have been called servant in the Bible. But they're all flawed. They all end up really in the same place. And so this servant in Isaiah chapter 42 is the ideal servant. And he comes to put things right. That's how justice is understood in that passage of text. He restores the divine order. And perhaps more appropriately, in order to restore the, the divine order, he must deal with the problem. The problem just isn't that there's chaos. The problem isn't that there is separation between man and God. The problem is that man has sinned, and he has to fix that. So that was our first song, fixing what is broken, and he does that by um, uh, through the forgiveness of sins. Then we saw the song of mission. That was last week. And so then the question is, is if he's going to, if this servant, this ideal servant, is going to set everything right, then... What is the scope of his work? To, to whom does that work extend? If he's going to bring about, uh, restore the divine order through the forgiveness of sins, to whom does that work extend? Is it just for a specific group of people? Is it just for a particular nation? Is it just for um, a social class? Who will receive the benefit of the work of the servant. And we learn that his mission is to bring salvation to the ends of the earth, every tribe and tongue and nation. And so um, everybody will be, um, the scope of his work goes to the ends of the earth. So that's where we've been. Let me give you a little bit of preview, um, a little bit more preview as to where we're going to go today. Today is a song of faithfulness. And you'll see when we lit our candle today, our, can our Advent candle was the candle of faithfulness. That's going to be our theme today because one of the things that we're going to see by way of preview is that this servant is righteous but rejected. That he is righteous but rejected. And even in his rejection, he is faithful to trust in God who will vindicate him. So while everybody is saying, you are guilty, you are a blasphemer, you have no business being on this earth, he continues to trust in God, and it is God who is going to vindicate him. So that's um, one of the places we're going to go. And in his trust in God, we are going to see that, that he is righteous. In other words, he fulfills the law of God perfectly. When I talk about him being righteous, I'm talking about him upholding God's law perfectly. And then finally, one of the things we'll see rather unique to this particular song is that the song concludes with an application, which is interesting. The previous two songs actually ended with praise. We didn't get to that part, but you can go back and look. The previous two songs end in praise. And, and you've heard this from us all from from the pulpit, from our Bible studies, if you've been around this church very long, you understand that theology should always lead to doxology. 
know, theology should lead to praise. And so those previous two hymns um, ended in praise. This one's a little unique because it ends in an application. That is, this is now how you ought to live. This, knowing this information should result in a manner of life. And so, we also hold here that not only should theology lead to doxology, but, but then it should also lead to praxis. In other words, it should affect the way we live. So, we learn about God. It draws us and, and calls us and, and compels us to our knees where we praise God. And then we go out the door and our lives are affected by what we know about God. And so today, our song ends with an application. So... That's my introduction. Let's go ahead and uh, let's read our text. Follow along with me as we read our text today in Isaiah chapter 50. I'm going to begin with verse 4 and I'll read through verse 11. And so, if you will, um, listen intently, uh, for this is God's word. God speaking to his people. Isaiah chapter 50, verse 4. God's inerrant word. The Lord God has given me a tongue to those of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens, he awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backwards. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. But the Lord helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will, declare, who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of the servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Behold, all you who kindle a fire, who equip yourselves with burning torches, walk by the light of your fire and by the torches that you have kindled. This you have from my hand, you shall lie down. In torment. Father, we come before you and we thank you for your word. I pray that you would open our ears to hear what you have to say and not that we just hear and listen and it goes in one ear and out the other, but it resides in our hearts and it changes our lives and that we live for your splendor and for your majesty and that all that we say and do reflect your beauty. Lord, we pray this day that you would guide us for Christ's sake. Amen. So our text begins with this, this idea, the Lord God has given me. The me here is the servant. Um, so that's, hence this is the, four, the third servant song. And um, the Lord God has given me. What has he given me? He has given me a tongue as those who are taught. So we begin with, um, this is uh, the Lord God. This, in Hebrew, it is Adonai Yahweh. And literally the sovereign God, the sovereign God, the God who rules over everything, the God who holds all things in his hand, 
the God in whom um, decrees and it happens, this God has given to me a learned or an expert tongue. He has given me the ability to deliver a divine message. He has given me the tongue of those who are taught. I have now a divine message. In other words, what the servant speaks is a communication from God himself. It is a divine message. It is not a message of his own making. It is not a message of his own feelings. It is not a message that he creates out of his own mind, out of his own thinking. It is a communication from God Almighty, from the sovereign God who rules over all, the one who speaks, and it is that that sovereign God has given me a message. And this is what I say. Look what Jesus says. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given to me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. We understand the servant in the same way that the New Testament authors understand the servant. That the servant is Jesus Christ and nobody else. And Jesus Christ now comes with the word of God and speaks boldly the word of God. His message is what the Father told him. He says, I only say what I hear the Father saying. I only do what I see the Father doing. These are, my, these are the words of God. So this is who um, Jesus is, um, is declaring. The servant speaks a divine message. It's interesting um, what that divine message is in this particular song. The divine message is, the Lord God has given me a tongue of those who are taught that I may know, or here's the message, that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. What a great thought. He, the word that the, mess, that the servant comes to bring, there are many messages that the servant brought, but this one here is to sustain the weary. And I suppose we can identify the weary in a lot of different ways, more likely than not. In the time that Isaiah was written, the weary were those who were just tired of warfare. They'd been enslaved for many, many decades. They were tired of being slaves. They were tired of working for somebody else. They were... They had endured years and years of war. But the servant is one who has words of comfort for the weary. I suppose that in the days of Christ, the weary could have been the Israelites laboring under the burden of the law. In fact, Jesus condemned the Pharisees. He says, you pile up law upon these people, burden upon burden, and then you don't even lift a finger to help them. You pile burdens on them that they can't carry. And then you don't do anything to help them. And Jesus says, I come with a word for you. You who are burdened by the law that you cannot keep. 
Year after year, you're reminded, day after day, you're reminded that you cannot keep my law. Every lamb and ram and turtle dove and goat that is sacrificed is another reminder that you cannot keep my law. I come to you who are weary in your sin. And I'm going to give you rest. That's my word. I suppose to the Gentiles who are weary of the powerlessness of idols that cannot ease their guilt. One of my favorite favorite prayers, just by contrast, it's, it's not a Christian prayer, it's not a Jewish prayer, it's, a, it's an ancient Sumerian prayer I've read here in church before. Not because it's godly, but because it reveals the mindset and the knowledge of ancient paganism. And this particular individual prays to the God or God who I may or may not know. To the God or goddess who I may or may not have offended. To the God or goddess who may or may not rule over me. He has no idea. He's just covering his bases. He knows he's done something. He has guilt for his sin. He has no idea who to approach. So he just says, I don't know, some God or goddess to whom I may or may not offend it. To this person, Christ comes and I give you words of comfort to the weary. Come to me, all you who are weak and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is the promise of the Savior. I don't know your situation today, but if you are here, are you heavy laden, broken, needing rest? I want you to know that Christ, the servant, the ideal servant, the perfect servant of the Lord, has come and he can and will give you rest. The first in the Lord, the sovereign God, has given me a learned tongue. But not only does he give the servant a learned tongue, but he gives him an awakened ear. See this. The Lord has given me the tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens, he awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. His hearing leads, I'm sorry, the ability then to speak comfort is the product of his daily, of a daily process of learning, hearing from God on a regular and daily basis. Morning by morning, he awakens. Morning by morning, I hear God's word and I speak what he tells me to speak. It is a daily reception of the message of the Holy Spirit. In other words, he has frequent interaction with the Father. And we see this throughout the life of Christ, how he would frequently go away and get alone with his heavenly Father. I do find one of the things that stood out to me in this passage, and I'll just share this just because it was new to me, or kind of brought up, and that is how the ear is the organ par excellence of receiving divine revelation. It's not the eye. It's the ear. That is, to, to know God is to hear God's word. God says, you can't see me and live. It's not the eye so much. 
it's the ear because when we hear, it's not simply hearing, but it's also when, when one truly hears, um, the idea is that one obeys. Because we hear a lot of people, we hear of a lot of people who hear God's word, it goes one ear and out the other. But hearing in the Bible has to do with somebody who hears and obeys. What does Jesus say? My sheep do what they hear my voice and they follow me. They don't see me as the great shepherd. They hear my voice. They know the voice of the shepherd. And they follow after me. So God has awakened my ear, given me the message, and I speak words of comfort to the weary. That's the, one of the roles of the servant. And then again, we see um, this indicator. So there's a new a shift here. So once again, the Lord God, you'll, you'll see that repeated through this um, through this song. Um, so I've kind of structured my message around the, the phrasing, the Lord God, the Sovereign Lord. So now we see the Sovereign God in verse 5. He has done what? He has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. So God has opened my ear and my, the hearing of what God has to say leads to obedience. And I wanted to look at how this obedience, this obedience seems to go in two different directions. The first one is that it leads to righteousness or faithfulness in the plan of God. Look at what he says. He says, the Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. I turned not backwards. Folks, this is in sharp contrast to many others who were called the servant of God. Others who were called servants heard God's word and didn't do anything about it. It did truly go in one ear and out the other. Israel was called the servant of God. She heard God's word and turned to idols. This servant hears God's word and is faithful to them. He is unlike Yahweh's other servants who withdraw. Adam heard and rebelled. Israel heard and rebelled. This servant hears and obeys. I want to kind of go off on this point just a little bit. That I think it's crucial for our understanding of the nature and person of Christ and who we are in Christ. Because so oftentimes we talk about the importance of the cross, and we should. Paul says, I preach Christ and Him crucified. Please don't think for a moment that I'm here to diminish the cross of Christ. It is of primary importance. The resurrection is massive history-changing event. The ascension of Christ, where now He rules and reigns from heaven over, over all things, is a massively important event. But I want you to understand that Christ simply didn't die for our sins. That's not the extent of His work. I heard your word and I did what you say. Jesus not only dies for our sins, but he lives for our righteousness. I want you to get that point. He not only died for your sins, he lived for your righteousness. And hence, we come to the necessity of Bethlehem. The incarnation is necessary for a number of reasons, and I won't go off on them, but let me go off on this one. Because as important as I said, as important as the death of Christ, so the life of Christ. 
Christ lived a perfect life. And we toss that phrase out there, well, he did, right? He lived a perfect life. We need to understand, and and we preach this here a lot, so you should never get tired of this message. But it's not unique. Christ is born, in other words, we ask the question, why born as a baby? Why doesn't he just come, appear on the scene as an adult, go die for our sins, get resurrected from the dead, and ascend into heaven? Why couldn't, why 30 years of obscurity? Christ lived a perfect life. He fulfilled the law completely. That is, every moment of every day, Every second, he loved the Lord his God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he loved his neighbor as himself every moment of every day. In other words, he was the spotless Lamb of God. This didn't just qualify him to atone for our sins because an amazing thing happens on the cross. And we we, we read this in other passages of text. His obedience is now his righteousness. He was righteous. Never broke the law. Never broke God's law. None of it. And here's the amazing thing. His righteousness is credited to you. Think about this. We we talk about him dying for our sins. So he dies for your sins. You now have your sins covered. You are now without, if you are in Christ, your sins are covered. They're forgiven. But there's another requirement. You need to be righteous. How are you going to get righteous? Because you're not righteous. Sinlessness doesn't make you righteous. Sinlessness makes you without sin, but you still haven't done righteousness. Christ credits his righteousness to your account and He takes our sin and credits it to his account. He becomes, if you will, um, he bears our sin, and now we have his righteousness. Not only are you without sin, but you are now righteous. This is, I heard your word, and I did it. So now we are right. If you are in Christ, you are righteous before God. What an awesome thought. You are not only without sin in the eyes of God, you are righteous. Why? Not because you did everything perfect. How many of you have already sinned today? It's not even 11 o'clock and we're in church. And yet you can stand holy and blameless before God Almighty and you can stand God sees you as righteous because you have the righteousness of Christ. Again, your sinlessness is because of what Christ has done for you and your right standing with God is because of what Christ has done for you. Your whole life, every aspect of your life is from because of what Christ has done on your behalf. So, I hear your voice. The Lord has opened my ear and I didn't turn backwards. I did everything. I fulfilled the law perfectly. Now you think, you would think that that would bring about 
of rejoicing by people, but instead um, people saw the life of the servant and instead of being joyful for his ministry, it says, I gave my back to those who strike me and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Here, his submission to God leads to the rejection by men. He is physically tortured. He is disgraced. Here, we're getting a hint of how the servant's going to accomplish his task. We'll see that next week. And so, we see that God has opened his ears, and he does everything that God tells him to do, including allowing others to mock him, spit on him, and torture him. This is the path of securing righteousness for my people, and I will do it perfectly. So now we have this faithfulness of this servant. We, can, we come into verse 7, and again we see that phrase, but the Lord God helps me. But sovereign God helps me. This is literally, but God I gave my back to those who strike me, my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting, but God. But the sovereign God helps me. Here's an interesting observation, or at least interesting to me. How is he helped by sovereign God? I'll tell you how he's not helped. He's not helped by having the suffering removed. That's not how he's helped here. He is helped. Sovereign God helps him by vindicating him, by declaring him innocent. He trusts in the sovereign God in the midst of his shame. He trusts in the Lord of all creation. He trusts in the Lord of history. He's trusting in the Lord of all that this God is going to help him. It says, I set my face like a flint. This is just resolute determination. I set my face like a flint, and I know that I will not be put to shame. I am determined to fulfill the purposes for which I have been called, and I will do them perfectly, despite what everybody else does. Because you can say all sorts of slanderous things about me, but I know. I will be vindicated by the sovereign God of all creation. And then we see this courtroom scene. Who will contend with me? Bring your case. This is what the, the servant is saying. Who's going to contend with me? Bring your case. Bring, bring your stack of evidence. Who is my adversary? Come. Bring your charges. Who's going to contend with me? Bring your case. Mount up your evidence. Bring your folders and your files and your briefcases and pile up your evidence against me. He's been charged with guilt by his enemy, but, he, but the servant maintains that I, that God will plead my case because God is near and he will secure an acquittal for me. Then we ask ourselves the question, when was he acquitted? Has he been acquitted? Let me put forth to you two or three events that indicate that the servant was vindicated by God Almighty. 
his resurrection from the dead. Paul says that Christ was raised from the dead, which proves that he is the Son of God. He is who he says he is. How do you know he is who he says he is? Because God raised him from the dead. We see this also in, um, in Acts chapter 13, verse 33. The fact that God raised him from the dead is indication that he has been vindicated, that his claims were true, that his words were right. Isaiah 52, 13, we have a, a, uh, a shadowy reference to his ascension. His ascension proves that he is the Lord of all. And ultimately, when he returns again to judge the living and the dead, he will again be vindicated. He will be acquitted. I want you to know that if you are in him, though the world and society will declare you guilty and all kinds of names, it is God who vindicates you. It is God who will judge you righteous. It is God who will uphold you. One of the beauties, one of the great messages that we learned when we, at least that I learned, I don't know what you did, but when we studied through the book of Revelation was that it is the vindication of God's people. One of the big themes in the book of Revelation. I know we all get caught up in dates and times and seasons, but one of the beautiful, beautiful themes that just flows all the way through the book is the beast declares you guilty and even puts you to death. And God declares you innocent. Yeah. Praise God. I think... Uh, let me see if I can... One of the... Uh, most revealing passages of text. So as God is vindicating his people, they are declared guilty and God declares them right. One of the great passages of, uh, of text. At the very end of chapter 6 of Revelation, it is people calling out, calling for the mountains to fall upon them because of the appearance of the Lamb of God. And they call out to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of Him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come. And here's the question, who can stand? Who can stand on the great day of God's wrath? They would rather have mountains fall on them because who can stand on the, before the one who is seated on the throne and the Lamb? Go over to verse 7. Verse 9. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every tribe and people and language standing before the throne and the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to to God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb and all the angels standing around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures, they fell on their faces saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, Who are these? These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. So the, the chapter 6 ends, Who can stand before the throne and the Lamb? Answer. Those who endure to the end are standing before God in the great tribulation and they are blessed 
before God and they are crying out blessing and glory and honor and power and dominion to him who sits on the throne and is the lamb who can stand the ones who are in Christ. He will vindicate you. The world declared them guilty and God has them before him saying, no, you're innocent. You are my people. You are not guilty. I'm the highest court in the universe. You are not guilty. Of course, that reminds us of Romans chapter 8, right? And who can bring a charge against God's elect? Who can bring a charge against what accusation can be leveled against one of God's people? I love how Paul answers. Because he asks the question, who can bring a charge against God's elect? And then he answers. It's God who justifies. Do you get that? Justification is a declaration of a a not guilty verdict. So who can bring a charge? God's already declared you not guilty. What court is higher than God Almighty? What court in the universe can you appeal to if God Almighty has slammed the gavel down and said not guilty? Who can bring a charge against God's elect? And so we see that God is the one who vindicates the servant. And I want you to know that if you are in Christ, you too will be declared not guilty and nobody can bring a charge. So we move along and we see that it is the sovereign God who helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint. He who vindicates me is near. I'm going to jump ahead to verse 9. Behold, the sovereign God, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment and the moth will eat them up. Who can declare me guilty? God judges me righteously. God upholds me. The creator of the universe is my advocate. And in contrast, the adversaries will wear out. A gradual but certain wearing out or a gradual but certain destruction. So let me just give you a brief summary of where we've been because we've covered a lot of material. Our quick summary is this, that the servant is the one who is faithful. And this includes a lifestyle of intimate relationship with the Father, a lifestyle of suffering, and a lifestyle of trust. And then we get to chapter verses 10 and 11, and this is the application. And you'll note it begins, Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? I believe that these two lines are complementary. They're speaking of the same thing. The one who, who fears the Lord obeys the servant. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. The one who loves God um, loves, the, loves the Son also. And look what it says. It's kind of, int- well, I think it's really interesting. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord of the Lord and rely on his God. Trusting in God here is a, speaks of the one who trusts even if it means walking in darkness like the servant. In other words, it is walking by faith and not by sight. It is hearing the word of God and I don't see the next step, but I know what God has, has said and I will take that next step even though I have no idea where it's going to lead me. But I will trust in my God. Trusting, I want you to know that trusting in the sovereign God and his servant is the most secure place in the universe, even if you can't see the next step. It's the best place for you to be. 
It is walking. Walking by faith and not by sight is a safe place to be. I find it interesting here that this is addressed to the individual. It is not addressed to, to corporate Israel. It is addressed to the individual. It is addressed to the individual to bear witness to the truth. And so you, the one who, who trusts in God, even though you don't see where God is leading you and you don't know the next step, if you are obeying God's voice, if you're obeying what he has revealed to us in his word, where you don't know the next step, will you trust him? I, I, two examples. First of all, when I first became a Christian, probably like you, many of you, it's like, what's this going to mean for me? I mean, I understand that it's going to mean a whole new life. But I don't know exactly what that life is. I don't know anything about being a Christian. I've never been one. I suppose it's going to... And so the path before me was... There wasn't some clear path. Like, oh, trust in God and then believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you're going to be saved. And then the path was clear for me. I had no idea what, what it was going to take. It's like, okay, I don't know what the next step is, but I know God and I'm going to place my trust in him and whatever that next step is, I'm going to trust him. The next one was when I believe God called me into ministry and I had no idea what the next step was going to be. I said, but God, think about all the things I'm going to have to give up, the things that, that, that I, some of the joys that I, that I have and boy, if I really committed to you, some of these things may, may disappear. I don't know. They may, they may not, but I don't know what the next step is. And I remember there was a moment of decision. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? Like, I have no idea what tomorrow brings. And if I make this commitment, I don't know what's going to happen. I'm in darkness because I don't know the next step. But I'll trust. Here we go. Two of the safest decisions I've ever made in my life was trusting in Christ for salvation and trusting in Christ for ministry. Had no idea what they were going to do. Still don't know half the time. The safest, most secure decisions ever made were those two. So the first one is trusting in God, even if it, even if it means walking in darkness. And here's the other thing, folks. Trust implies difficulty, doesn't it? I mean, if we have everything we need, then trust is unnecessary. I don't... So I want, despite what we're told on a repeated basis, God does not promise ease or comfort. But he will always be near, and he will um, vindicate you. See, a savior is not necessary to the person who has no need. If you don't have sin, if you don't believe you've had any sin, you don't need a savior. There's nothing to be saved from. So trust implies difficulty. So when we call you to trust in Christ for salvation, um, it's because you have a need. You've sinned against a holy God and you will, you will bear his wrath. Or you can trust that Christ has borne the wrath in your place. Can you trust that? But you have a need. Your need is that you 
you need to have your sins forgiven. So that's the first thing. The second application is to those who are self-reliant. And this is a rather um, poetic way of putting it, but let me try to unpack it a little bit. Behold, all you who kindle a fire, who equip yourself with burning torches, walk by the light of your fire and by the torches that you have kindled. This you have from my hand. You shall lie down in torment. Here's the idea here. The picture is one who is creating his own light, who seeks to find his own way out of the darkness. He creates his own light. He builds his own torch and lights it with his own light. His reliance is on his own ability to escape the darkness. And here, that's the most dangerous place you can be. The most dangerous place you can be is to light your own path and say, look, I have found my own way out of my my own darkness. And this is to the peril. Most people would say, you know what? I've created a God of my own. Oh, I believe in Jesus and all this. And I just believe that he's, I've got this. I don't believe in the traditional orthodox way of Jesus. I've created my own way. You've lit your own light and you will lie down in torment. This is what he says. It is not going to deliver you. Your own light will not save you. Your own torch will do nothing but deceive. It will lead you down the wrong path. You are much safer trusting in God in a dark place than you are by lighting your own lamp and seeking your own way of deliverance. This self-made light will consume you. It will be to your destruction. There is a never-ending... There is never-ending creativity as to how one might find eternal life with God. People are coming up with new ways all the time. Well, there's probably not any new ways, but they're just very creative. That's their own light, and it will lead to their own torment. So, I'll, I'll conclude with this. The servant, then, is one who is in daily intimate relationship with his father. His hearing is equated with obedience, and the result is that his mouth speaks comfort. Second point, summary point, is that the servant trusts God. The servant is righteous but rejected, but he leans upon sovereign God for his own vindication. And finally, that is given to us not just as a an encouraging example, but the example is given to us for us to emulate. The text calls for us to emulate. Do what the servant does. Live like the servant. That is, hear, which equals obey. When you hear the voice of God, obey what the voice of God says. And if you want to know what the voice of God is, you've heard the old joke, right? If you want to hear God speak, read his word. And if you want to hear him speak audibly, read it out loud, right? You want to know what God is saying? You don't have to go very far. It's right here. If you don't have one of these Bibles, I'll give you one. All right? It's just that simple. we got plenty. There's one in your pew back. You can take it. The text calls us to hear the word of God like the servant did, and then which really equals obeying. And obeying then is to trust in his way and not rely upon our self-made remedies. So this is the third song. It is the song of faithfulness, and it calls us to be faithful. 
So if you will, um, 